Guys, we're going to be in 1 Kings 19 tonight, and so hopefully you have a, a sheet of paper that you can, uh, with a passage on it, you can follow along. If not, um, there's also Bibles on the back table that you can grab. Uh, I'm going to read um, the whole, uh, almost the whole chapter, 1 Kings 19, uh, all the way down to verse uh, 18. So hear the, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Let me just pause right there for a moment to give you the context. If you're not remembering Ahab is the king of Israel. His wife is Jezebel. Elijah is the prophet of God. Uh, King Ahab, he tells his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have taken, forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we come tonight, we are a dependent people. Uh, We are dependent upon you and upon your spirit to help us to understand, to help us to see the hope that is ours in Christ. And so we pray that you'll give us great wisdom and understanding, even from your word. Not only that we'll understand you, but we'll even understand ourselves better. And so by uh, be able to serve you in a greater way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Anxious, exhausted, burned out, and ready to quit. 
uh, could easily describe most of us in the 21st century. Uh, story after story, uh, article after article, relays sort of that same motto of what's happening among college students in our world today. Counseling centers are overbooked, they're understaffed, and wait times are the longest that they have ever been. Uh, anxious, exhausted, burned out, and ready to quit sort of typifies the, the life and the culture that a lot of you, that a lot of us are experiencing. Whenever I, early on, whenever I was started with RUF several years ago, I was asked to be on this kind of a, a, a group um, doing research within the university to help uh, address the issue of suicide and suicide ideation. And they wanted to have counselors and professors and somebody from the community of faith. And so they asked me to serve on this kind of a board of, of folks from the university to, to help do research and to help come up with a better strategy to address these issues that are facing college students. And so we networked with a lot of the folks around campus. And one of the things that surprised me and surprised a lot of the folks on this team is that when we met with one of the counselors from the counseling center, she sat down with us and she said, here are the top three reasons why students come to counseling. They're anxious, they're depressed, and they can't sleep. She said it's not eating disorders, it's not, uh, it's not sexual relationship issues, it's not career and majors, it's anxiety, it's depression, and it's sleep. What's ironic though to me is I sat down and started thinking through this passage and I thought about Elijah and where Elijah is in this moment. The words that came to my mind is I thought, where are we meeting Elijah in this moment in 1 Kings 19? The words that came to me were anxious, exhausted, burned out, and ready to quit. <laughs> That's where we find Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Uh, what I want you to see tonight, while it's true that we live in a, in, a, in a time that's in many ways we're confronted with these realities of anxiety and depression, an overwhelming sense of life not going well, that's not unique to the culture and the world in which we live in fact, what we're going to see tonight is that because it really does define this season in Elijah's life, we have a lot that we can learn on how God meets his people in this place in moments of despair and even how he cares tenderly for them through his word. That's what I want you to see tonight. God meets his people in these dark times and moments of despair and cares tenderly for them through his word. So let's, let's kind of look a little bit more specifically at Elijah. Let me just set up the picture for you. The first thing I want you to see is just this, these are days of despair for Elijah. If you didn't catch it on the first reading, Elijah is struggling in this season of his life. If you were here last week, you, you heard the, the incredible story of how Elijah confronted the king Ahab about his false worship and set up this, this challenge with the prophets of Baal. And he called down fire from heaven that God answered and 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 brought down fire and, 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 uh, and consumed the, the altar where the sacrifice was made. And as a result of the justice of God, Elijah slaughtered all of the false prophets of Baal. And you would think that in that moment, I mean, this is one of the most incredible miracles of the Old Testament of seeing God at work. If there's ever a question, is God real? I mean, Elijah just had it firsthand. And you would think Ahab would have gone home. And as he talked to his wife, Jezebel, like, you're not going to believe what just happened today. You can just imagine this conversation at the home of, uh, of Ahab and Jezebel. And the passage opens up 
essentially with the reality, Jezebel does not care. Verse 2, Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. We haven't really opened up a lot of the story of Jezebel. We're going to see more of her uh, soon. She is awfully wicked. She has a reputation for have killing a number of God's prophets. So when she says, I'm out to kill you, Elijah, he knows it's real and it's true because she's done it. But even more than that, I think what Elijah is also seeing is that for all of the ways that God has displayed his power, it's done nothing to change the heart of the king and queen of Israel, who should be the spiritual leaders of the nation, but who are only going back and trying to figure out a way to continue worshiping false gods and false deities. It's worth pausing right there just for a minute to just consider the reality that sometimes I think we believe, and I know that I believe uh, in my own kind of arrogance and pride, that if I could just sit down with somebody and I can be nice enough and friendly enough and get the opportunity to explain to them the gospel and work through what the Bible really teaches and how it really unpacks and how you can really understand what God is doing, that that surely they would come to a, a sense of understanding and belief. And if anything we see And for you to think about your own friends and your own family members who you're seeking to share the gospel with, unless the Holy Spirit moves in their hearts to confront them, to change them, to help them to understand his word, God bringing down fire from heaven to destroy the sacrifices on an altar, if it's not enough to to convict and to, to convert Ahab and Jezebel, well, then we've got to see that it truly, really is only the Holy Spirit and God at work who can change hearts and lives. Jesus, uh, or John said about Jesus in John chapter one, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him because they loved the darkness more than the light. And that's true of Ahab and Jezebel. And as a result, Jezebel wants to kill Elijah. And so we see in verse three, that as a response, it says, then he, Elijah was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Uh, He's running to Beersheba. You and I, we don't know our Middle Eastern geography real well, but if you were in this culture, you would understand that where he's just gone is to the extreme southern end of the nation. He's traveled 120 miles on foot. He was at the northern part of the nation, and he's now gone to the extreme southern end to get as far as possible away from this threat to get away from her. He drops his servant off in verse 3, and notice what he does in verse 4. He himself goes another day's journey into the wilderness, comes and sits down under a tree, and he asks that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is exhausted. I think you could say he's depressed. I think you could say he's burned out. And it almost seems as if he's done. Take my life, Lord, because I'm no better than my father's. Before we jump to conclusions about Elijah, let let me just kind of reflect for a moment to think about here's where Elijah has been, right? Like, let's just kind of pause for a moment and go, here's what Elijah's life has been like for the last three years. Uh, In case you forgot or in case you weren't here, Elijah, when we first met him, was called to confront the king, King Ahab, about his false worship, that he was going to bring a drought 
there was going to be a sign of God's judgment. And for three years, there was no rain. And while there was no rain, God sent him into the wilderness where he was fed by the birds, by the ravens, and he drank from a brook. And when the brook dried up, he went and he found a widow that God told him, this widow is going to feed you. And from that widow, a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour, continued to feed them day after day after day out of a miracle of God. And even while he's with this widow and her one son, the son dies. And Elijah is just completely taken aback by that reality. But he prays to the Lord that he'll bring life back to that son. And as a miracle, he does. And then Elijah confronts, as I just said a minute ago, the false prophets of Baal and the ones that Ahab worship, calling on God to bring fire down from heaven to consume the, the sacrifice on the altar as a sign of proof that God is the only God worth living. And do you remember last week? That when Elijah asked all of the people of Israel, if God is God, serve him. But if Baal is Baal, serve him. And the people were silent. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody went forward. Nobody followed Elijah. The prophet of God called to bring his people to a place of repentance and faith. Can we not see why maybe at this scene, Elijah is exhausted? I mean, he has been living on the edge, trusting God day in and day out, and he's got to a point where he's tired. I recently read from uh, a quote from a pastor named Charles Spurgeon, who uh, was a pastor in London uh, a couple of centuries ago, who himself battled deep depression. And he wrote to his students uh, in a lecture, I should say, that he gave to his students. He writes this, that fits of depression remember this is like 19th century so it's going to sound a little bit off as far as the language but notice what he says fits of depression come over most of us usually cheerful as we may be we must at intervals be cast down the strong aren't always so vigorous the wise not always ready the brave not always courageous and the joyous not always happy i know by most painful experience what deep depression and spirit means and it's where we meet elijah and for some of you that might be where you are tonight of feeling that sense of anxiety and depression and like the darkness is closing in and you're just wondering, God, where are you? And what is the purpose that you have in my life? Those seasons of darkness come. Those seasons of darkness are realities. But what I also want you to see in this passage tonight is that God doesn't leave us in those places. He doesn't want us to stay in those places, but he actually by his grace comes and meets us in these moments of darkness in despair. God sees Elijah, he knows Elijah, and he shows him true loving kindness. Notice the second point. Even in this place of darkness, God's loving kindness comes to those who are in a place of despair. Verse 5, Elijah, he lays down. Remember, like he's, he's ready to die. He's ready for his life to be over, and he lays down to go to sleep, and an angel comes and touches him, and says, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a meal, a cake that had been baked on hot stones, a jar of water. He ate and he drank, and he lay back down again. My man is tired, and he falls back asleep. And the angel comes back, verse 7, second time, touches him, Arise, eat, the journey's too great. He arose and he ate and he drank, and he went for the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to the Mount of Horeb. Uh, there's, a, there's a very practical sense right here, like God meets him through this angel and is like, Get up and eat, because you, you need some food, you need some strength. But there's something even more significant. It's not laid out in detail, but the angel knows and Elijah knows his journey isn't complete. God's sending him somewhere. 
in this point where he's discouraged and tired and ready to give up, God is sending him to go to this mountain called Horeb. You and I might remember it as Sinai. It's the mountain where God met with Moses. It's the place where God gave the covenant to Moses. In other words, I think what's happening in this moment, God's giving Elijah the strength and the sustenance that he needs to go to the place where he's going to meet with God himself and where God is going to meet with Elijah. But the place is significant. God could have come down and met with Elijah in the wilderness. He could have met with him in the desert, but he's actually sending him to a place where uh, Elijah would have known this is the place in the history of our nation. This is the place in the history of redemption where God met with his people through Moses, where the covenant was delivered, where God promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. I want you to be in that place, remembering that reality. Whenever I come and I meet with you, Elijah, at the very least, For all of the ways in which we battle anxiety, depression, sadness, despair, affliction, whatever you want to call it. And I'm not saying that to make light of it. Tips and strategies and all of the things that we can do to try to navigate it, I think are helpful and they're good. Whether it's, you know, sort of breathing strategies, whether it's ways in which you realize I need to get away and take a break. All of those things are helpful and good. But notice What God does in this moment for Elijah is says, you need to meet with me. Even better, God's saying, Elijah, I'm going to come and meet with you. I see you. I know you. I care for you. And there's nothing that's going to heal your soul better than your creator. And by his grace, he's sending him to a place where the physical location is going to be a stark reminder of how God has kept his covenant faithfulness for generations before. And so Elijah goes, and he goes to the mountain of Horeb. And in verse 9, we find that he comes to this cave and he lodges in it. And again, remember, this, what's the point that I'm making right now is that God meets his people in times of darkness. God meets them in these places of despair. So here's Elijah. Here's our... our He's in the mountain. He goes to a cave. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I've read a bunch of commentaries on this, and a lot of them seem to think that this is like God is kind of coming to Elijah in a sense of um, almost like a parent rebuking their child with like, like, what are you doing? You can kind of hear the shame. Like maybe you've had that moment when you were a kid with your parent, like after you like colored on the wall, what are you doing here? I actually don't think that's what's happening. I actually think God, like a parent in tender loving kindness, is coming alongside and meeting Elijah, not in shame, but in grace and mercy and asking him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He's inviting Elijah to unburden his soul. Tell me what's going on. What's happening? So Elijah responds in verse 10. Here's why I'm here. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I don't think Elijah's whining. (laughs) I don't think he's kind of just being a baby. I think he's making an accurate assessment of this is what's happening. 
God, this is the, the world that I'm experiencing. This is where you've called me to be a prophet. And God's giving him the opportunity to unburden his soul and to lay it on the line. Sometimes it strikes me how we often will refer to our anxiety in sort of a generic way. Um, like, for instance, you might say, and maybe you've, maybe you've said this or maybe you've heard a friend say this, is like, my anxiety is really high or my mental space isn't good. And we kind of just leave it at that. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. And there's something really healthy about being able to say, my anxiety's high, fair enough. Why is your anxiety high? What is it that has your soul anxious? Because as you can process that out and put a label to it and flesh out what's going on is where you can take that anxiety and meet it with the promises that God has made. When you say my anxiety is high, it just kind of leaves it in that place. But when you say I'm anxious over this class that if I don't pass it, I'm not going to graduate from college. And if I don't graduate college, I'm going to be homeless. And if I'm homeless, I'm going to end up living in a van down by the river. And that's like what I'm afraid of. Right. And like all of a sudden you're like, now I see why you're anxious. Right. Like I can connect those dots and let's like all of a sudden now backtrack and go, maybe let's not spin up so crazy and let's take it one step at a time. Right. But like in seriousness, though, when we just leave it in a generic way, it never gets dealt with. But when we can be specific, here's what's going on and I can start to connect the dots, all of a sudden I can take the promises of God and I can connect his faithfulness and history and map it on to what's happening in my life and in my world. And so as he unburdens his soul, God meets him in loving kindness in a way that we don't expect. Verse 11 and 12, God comes to him uh, and, and, he, and he brings this incredible wind. Uh, he tells him, go ahead and stand on a mountain and Elijah goes and the Lord brings this great and strong wind that tears the mountains and it breaks into pieces and the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Sounds like last week, fire, that communicated God, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, or some translations say a still small voice, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he knew that he had heard the Lord because he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went and stood at the entrance of the cave. And God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? God's not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. He's in the low whisper. And you're kind of like, man, that's, that's incredible. But what, what does it mean? <laughs> He's not in all of those things, but what, what, does it, what does it mean? How are we supposed to understand what's happening in that place? And I think what's going on is that after all of the rejection and all of the massive demonstration that God has given, we tend to think that if we could just have this incredible experience, then we would be convinced of God's reality, of God's faithfulness, of God's truth. And I think in the still small voice, in the whisper, God's meeting with Elijah and saying that in the quietness of what's happening in your life, it doesn't mean that I'm not still at work. I'm still at work. The kingdom is advancing even in unseen ways like the mustard seed that Jesus told us about that's hidden and unseen is the way in which God loves to work. I was thinking about this of how like we love, we, especially this is like an American thing, right? We love massive demonstrations. And I saw a video this week of a church um, in Texas that is a like display of like 
awesome worship apparently is like they have drummers on zip lines zipping around through the sanctuary like playing a set during worship and the comments were pretty funny because uh, some were like that's awesome and kind of disturbing at the same time <laughs> and i think that what what's happening in that moment is like we sort of have this thing of like if there's something like powerful and amazing like that's going to be awesome and, and really really you know kind of like almost entertaining and god's meeting with elijah and saying you know what it's actually not and what's the performance it's not in the big display but it's actually in my word my voice that comes and meets you and hears you that you can trust and put your faith in and so he asks him again why are you here elijah and he gives him the same response because the way in which God's people are living are completely uh, opposed to the faithfulness of God. Again, it's worth pausing. When you think about the places that get you anxious, and when I think about the places that I get anxious about, how often am I anxious? How often are we this concerned about the people of God living faithfully? And how often is our anxiety only wrapped up in myself? What brings me to a place of despair is only whenever my world feels threatened. And here's Elijah. I don't think he's afraid for his life. I think he's afraid that Jezebel's going to kill him and that as a response of that, it's going to be a complete embarrassment to the kingdom of God. I don't think Elijah's afraid of death because he goes into the wilderness and he's like, all right, I'm done. I'm ready to go now. God's not done with Elijah yet. And he meets him and promises him that through his word, he can be trusted and can still be seen to be at work. God's loving kindness meets Elijah in this place and it delivers him to a place of grace and justice. This is the final thing for us to see. I'll be quick. The grace and justice give Elijah hope to move forward in the future. Notice the way in which this, this plays out. Uh, it seems like a weird end, but I actually believe, and this is why I think Elijah's not just whining and complaining. I think God actually agrees with his indictment because notice what God tells him to do. In verse 15, he says, go return to Damascus and anoint these kings over Syria and Israel, Hazael and Jehu, and then Elisha will be a prophet in your place. And in verse 17, notice the way in which these kings and this prophet are bringing justice. The one who escapes the sword of Hazael will be put to death by Jehu, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, will be put to death. In other words, it's like God's saying, I see the injustice that's happening in this world, and I will bring justice. When we see evil in the world around us, even like the evil that we have seen in the news just this week of the un, uh, unjust deaths, of folks who have been killed at the hands of, of people who should be trusted, and we cry out, where's the justice? Don't mistake or don't miss the reality. God has promised in his word that he will bring justice. And in this season, God's appointing Elijah to anoint these kings and this future prophet who will be the executors of justice on behalf of the Lord himself. And yet at the same time, in that place of justice, God promises and offers grace and mercy. He tells Elijah in verse 18, I'll leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. In other words, Elijah, you're not alone. Elijah, you think you're the only prophet left and you think you're the only one who's been faithful, but there's something that you, that you can't see that I know. And I'm going to tell you that there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's like Jesus promised 
of I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. His mercy and his grace will continue on. Elisha will be the prophet who takes Elijah's mantle and continues the ministry from him. Elisha will be sort of the friend that Elijah needs, the companion through life. In this season of loneliness, Elisha is going to be one that brings him great hope. Justice and mercy. I think for us, as we sit here today, as we think about our own lives, and you connect those two realities of justice and mercy, the place that we see them on best display is in the work of Christ on our behalf. That on the cross, Jesus has taken the justice of God that really, if we were honest, that if God's justice came to bear, not in the world around us, but if he came to bear on my life, I would be undone. And you would be too. Because it's not just that there's an unjust world that we live in, but we ourselves are guilty of the sin that God's word condemns. And the justice of God that should fall on us actually falls on his son. And in his place, we receive grace and mercy. How does that help as we think about anxiety, depression, burnout, and fear? Your greatest threat, your greatest need has been met for you in Christ. There's no greater threat to your life or to my life than, an, than a, a life separated from God himself of the justice of God coming to bear on you and on me. And if God would be so uh, gracious and willing to send his son to redeem us in order to take that justice that we deserve in order that we might have life, then surely we can trust him for all the other details that come into place. And it's why Jesus said, do not fear, do not fear. Because God is your God and Jesus is your Savior and he's promised to continue to be at work. So even as we go through life, we can trust him in our anxious moments. Life can be hard. We can be fearful. We can still experience anxiety. We can still experience burnout. But we can take those to the reality of the cross and see that that place Christ has satisfied our greatest need on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do uh, confess that we need your, your work in our lives. Uh, I do pray especially as I think about the ways in which anxiety uh, surfaces in our lives, even in this room and even as we go about our lives, that you'll give us the faith and the ability to see the hope that is ours in Christ, that will combine those two realities of hope and faith and apply them to the places in our lives where we most experience anxiety so that we might meet you and move forward with hope and joy.